0: Once people learn these skills, not only were they able to maintain the quit rates at the three, six, and 12-month follow-ups, but the number of people who had quit actually is higher 12 months later, not lower. And that's pretty impressive. Now, we do see a lot of ups and downs. People aren't perfect in changing behaviors. They slip. But with this program, you can't really fail because all we ask you to do is just consciously try to keep doing more of the things that matter and less of the things that don't.
1: Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate this podcast in your favorite player, and of course, hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Brian Wallace, Chief Medical Officer at Comzi, Kamsi, in their own words, are empowering children to develop emotional resilience from an early age, while developing engaging digital therapeutic video games designed to improve outcomes for children with depression and anxiety. Today, I speak with Joe Masterson, CEO of Tomorrow. Tomorrow's mission, in their own words, is to help millions improve their lives with the use of evidence-based behavior change programs. But before we dive in, Joe and I met over five years ago while I was still at Big Pharma. She spent over a decade as a nurse, and when we first met, that caring nature was very clearly seen. She's focused on all the right things, and that's the health and well-being of patients and caregivers. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe. Joe, welcome to the TTX Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I know we met a while back and you've done some amazing work, but before we sort of dive in, I would love for our audience to get to know you who you are, a little bit about your background, and please don't forget one small interesting fact about yourself.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I listen all the time, so I feel really honored to be here. I started my career as a nurse. I'm an RN. And then after doing that for about a dozen years, I started, ran, and sold another business. Like business, went back to school, and earned an MBA. And then fast forward a few years, I co-founded this business, which is Tomorrow, and that's spelled with the number two. M-O-R-R-O-W. And I think an interesting fact is I came from a family of small business people and entrepreneurs. And when I was a kid, we ran a small ski area, small golf course, and a little fixed-based operation airport. And so very focused on service-facing businesses where you have to engage people. And that's kind of my background.
1: And help them through things in life, right? Wonderful landing in healthcare. With that, actually, how was that quote-unquote pivot? What was the inspiration to start tomorrow? I can only imagine the name itself, but maybe just tell us a little bit of the founding story.
0: Tomorrow is really formed from this core belief that my co-founder and I have around the fact that personal actions and habits determine our future. So what we consciously do and put our attention to determines how our life turns out, at least the parts we can control. And then in addition... We started back in about 2012, we were incorporated so super early, the smartphone was new, and my co-founder really believed, oh my gosh, this is the most powerful behavior change tool ever created, and people won't leave home without it. So we really thought, okay, can we take those two things, can we use this powerful behavior modification tool people have in their pocket, and help them really take ownership of their own life and move in the direction of things that matter. And then lastly, the CDC says over a third of all healthcare costs are driven by human behavior. I know this is a nurse. I can tell patients what to do all day long. And that doesn't mean they'll do it when they leave my side.
1: You keep mentioning your co-founder. I do know a little bit of the secret there. Your co-founder is your other half, your husband. So we have something in common here where it's a couple business. Tell us a little bit of the dirt there. I'm happy to share back. How has it been?
0: Yeah. Well, Brandon Masterson is my co-founder. This was originally his brainchild and I joined him right away there and left my job for this. We're married co-founders. I consider it a unfair advantage over other people who aren't as in sync with their co-founders and don't have a 24-7 access to them. I think it works really, really well for us. I don't know about for you guys. We have a lot of respect for each other and we have complementary skills. We're good at different things. I like him better than when he started the business and that's saying something,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, I actually didn't think it would have been possible on my end to love Marina more, but it happened, right? To your point, we're spending a lot of time together. We can read cues of each other without actually speaking. And we do obviously get asked a lot of the questions out there. How is it? I think I echo everything that you've said. The only difference is I always joked around that Marina was always my boss. Now it's official because she's the real boss in the company So as well. Let's move on from there. I'm sure we can chat quite a long time about that alone and share some stories. You mentioned you formed the company in 2012. It's something like 11 years later now. And at least according to Crunchbase, you have not actually raised a lot of money. And you've gone pretty long way, at least what I see as an outsider looking in. Maybe just describe a little bit of the funding journey and how has it been driving this business when some companies have raised hundreds of millions, and I'm not sure if they are anywhere where you are.
0: Thank you very much. It has been a journey, and I think when we first started, we were looking at, oh, this cool technology where we could use this tool and maybe make these great tools that help people improve their lives. And I must admit, when we first started, we weren't looking this far down to this large of a vision, and nobody was. We didn't even have the term digital health yet, let alone digital therapeutics. It was maybe m health at best. And we started out super early, self-funding with our co-founders and myself, and then had the opportunity to work with the Fred Hutch Cancer Center after we won the U.S. Surgeon General's Healthy App Challenge back in the early days. And that really led us to being able to test and validate programs and see that, oh my gosh, we can actually use these tools to drive behavior modification. And I know that even small changes in behaviors can have huge impact on our health. So we were really excited about that. We got an early life science discovery fund grant from the state of Washington that helped us kind of take work we did with the Hutch and take it to market. And then we've got a small group of supportive angel investors in the Seattle area. We're a Washington state company. I think up here in the Northwest, investors and startups and even clients, we just expect more bang for our buck. (laughs) We're not down in the area where there's maybe that more frenzied approach. And so we've really funded through grants, through some angel investment. We closed a small seed round last year, just 1.8 million. And then we just got a really nice NIH grant. We applied for a fast track grant and excited about that.
1: Well, that sound means it's time for a question from our amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel and, as her friends call her, Doctor No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Joe, what are your goals through the NIH grant for your pain digital therapeutic?
0: Thanks, Chandana. Our goals there really what we saw is we have a really powerful approach that can help people not only change behaviors, but change the way we cope with the things we can't deal with in life. So really, how do you live and cope with things that can't change and still move your life forward in a meaningful manner? This turned out to be really helpful for people with pain. And we did some early proof of concept study. We went and applied to the NIH and said, hey, we think this could be powerful in a medical setting. We think we could build something there. And they agreed with us. So they gave us a nice grant. What we're really looking at Is that gap in care around primary care physicians treat most of the pain in our country? And yet, majority of them say they're not trained. They don't really know how to deal with the emotional and mental side of living with pain that discouraged and often disappointed in their treatment piece that patients have and that providers are trying to navigate. So, looking to create a digital therapeutic that can help supplement the care they're getting in the primary care setting and put some ownership of their care back in the hands of the patient.
1: As usual, I'm gonna hop in here. So you mentioned you're gonna develop a pain DTX, but you have a number of products out there across addiction, weight, stress, and actually pain as well. Maybe you can describe what is that end customer slash patient experience using your product and walk us through kind of how do they even find you and then along that journey
0: majority of our programs right now are distributed through employer states and health plans. So we don't have a direct consumer play. We provide programs to organizations who are looking at managing the health of a population, often looking to be super scalable, often affordable, and reach underserved populations who are less likely to use the traditional health care systems. And so through an employer setting or maybe state Department of Health, people will be referenced to our program and when they first come in, there's really a couple of key things. So when they first come in, one of the important things is we deliver all of our wellness programs in the same app or the same platform. So when a user comes in, they get access, they see all the programs that they have access to, and they get to choose what they want to work on first. And we found that was super powerful and interesting because just by giving them the choice up front and letting them choose what they wanted to start with, they were more likely to engage. So they come in, they're going to see some a suite of programs, maybe smoking, weight, stress, goal setting, and pain or something like that. And they're going to choose what they want to work on. Then let's say they choose tobacco, which is probably one of the things we're best known for, smoking and tobacco. And they're going to create a small profile. We're going to use that information then to customize the program for the person as they move through it. After that profile, each day, they're going to open the app and get a short little lesson or article that focuses on one core concept or skill and I'll just kind of walk you through what one of those is like. They just take about a minute, minute and a half. So let's say you're in the smoking program. The first few days of the program, we've asked you to practice a concept called awareness. We just want you to start being aware of your urges to smoke. You don't have to do anything different about them. So then on day three or four, by now you're super aware of them. They're driving you crazy. When you open the app and you meet somebody we call the urge monster, and the exercise goes something like this. This one happens to be an audio exercise, and it says, Now that you're super aware of the urge to smoke, we'd like to see if you can try something different. When you next notice that urge, see if you can imagine it as a big, strong monster, the urge monster. Imagine that that monster has one end of a rope and you have the other end. All day long, he's constantly tugging at you, trying to get you to smoke. Luckily, you have willpower. You can resist, at least for a while. But the tugging goes on and on, and willpower is finite, and sooner or later, perhaps you get discouraged, distracted. Next thing you know, you slip, and you're having a cigarette. Well, today, when you notice that urge, we want you to actually see if you can imagine what it would look like as your urge monster. What might it look like? What might it smell like? We want you to feel that tension, that tug at you. But instead of fighting with them, what would happen if you just dropped the rope? What would happen if you dropped the rope, you said to the monster, hey, I know you're there, it's okay, but I got other things I got to do today. And you've shipped your focus to things that matter. Well, the urge to smoke, and the urge for most things, actually, the urge to smoke only lasts about three to five minutes, and it tends to fade away. So the urge monster basically gets bored and he wanders away. Now he'll come back, but you can use this technique or one of the other 20 techniques in this program to help you deal with it. For the rest of the program, we ask people to not only notice their urges, but to also notice if they're able to let them come and go and let them pass on their own. So that's the example of one of those quick exercises. Along the way, they track some behaviors and they can also access on-demand content and message with a live coach anytime they want.
1: We'll get to the coaching part a little bit later, but it's super interesting. And I'm actually curious to the extent that you're willing to disclose how many people are using it. Across all of this data, are you actually seeing some trends that people are actually sticking to lifestyle modifications and some of these behavior changes? Because, I mean, that's one of the most difficult things out there, right, is behavior change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's simple. It's just not easy, right, at all. And we do see changes. And one of the big things we change in our program, our programs really all focus on the same core principles, and that is of acceptance awareness and mindfulness, acceptance, making room for these thoughts, feelings, and urges in your life, and then the commitment to still move forward in a way that matters with you. So we have be aware, be willing to experience those things, and still make progress towards your goals. So what we look at is, can we increase people's ability to take what we call valued action, action that moves them toward their values and goals, not away from them. So we see that very clearly across all our programs. As people go through and learn these skills, they say, yes. I'm consciously doing things that are in alignment with who I am, my goals and values. So that's one of the measures we can see easily. But for the longer, maybe medical outcomes, we've been super lucky. Once again, we've done research with the Hutch, UW, Seattle Children's, a couple international universities, some other groups across the country. And the Hutch in particular just finished last year a phase three clinical trial 2,400 people in the study followed for a full 12 months afterwards, and this one was in tobacco, one of the hardest to change behaviors. And what they saw is that once people learned these skills, not only were they able to maintain the quit rates at the three, six, and 12-month follow-ups, but the number of people who had quit actually is higher 12 months later, not lower. And that's pretty impressive. Now, we do see a lot of ups and downs. People aren't perfect in changing behaviors. They slip. But with this program, you can't really fail because all we ask you to do is just consciously try to keep doing more of the things that matter and less of the things that don't. And so we do see people willing to keep working at it rather than feeling like I'm done and it's over.
1: You alluded to live health coaching. So that's near and dear to my heart, as many of the listeners know. And to a certain extent, this is kind of a little bit of our hypothesis that digital tools like yours are here, they're here to stay, they have great evidence, but at some point people do fall off and it's a little bit of that accountability component. Well, do I really need to be accountable to a technology? Yes, I should be just accountable to myself, right? But that evil person on one shoulder always takes over. Where do you see really the role of the health coaches on your team and how does that interact with the technology component of this?
0: That's a great question. And I think I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a nurse. I love high touch programs. I like to have my patients right in front of me and check them out and help them move forward. But what we're trying to do here at Tomorrow is really increase access to evidence-based care. And that means creating programs that masses will use, not just individuals, and that people who don't have access to care will use. So we really do value and think that the role of technology has a place, especially in providing access to people who don't have it or providing gap care of some sort. And there's a big group of people who don't want to talk to somebody. And these tend to be some disenfranchised groups. Once again, I'm talking tobacco, but in our tobacco program, Working with the state of Washington, we found that pregnant women were unlikely to call and talk to a coach and they were more likely to use the app. There's a lot of shame and judgment and fear of judgment. And even though, of course, our coaches and your coaches are well-trained and that's not going to happen. So we believe that in our program, we want people to have access to a live coach. They can message a coach anytime they want, but it's not required because what we're trying to do is not deter anyone from getting some care. And so our coaches can do some proactive outreach, but it's mostly participant-driven.
1: Meet the participant, and I like the term participant, where they are and what stage of life they're at.
0: Absolutely.
1: And at some points of life, we do need a human.
0: Absolutely. And our programs are created by humans, right? We've got nurses, we've got psychologists, we've got researchers, and we've got therapists, and we've got coaches on our team. So every one of us wants to have that participant relationship. But we also know it's their relationship and their choice on how they interact in
1: this win. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned wellness and you have a number of packages within the overall platform and product, right? Are you going after being a PDT or prescription digital therapeutic? Are you planning to stay non prescription? Because you also mentioned a phase three clinical trial. So kind of demystify this a little bit for the listeners.
0: Well, two things. I'm a nurse, so I want to know anything that I put out there is safe and effective before I even put it out. So clinical evidence, real world evidence, we're going to do that whether or not it's required for anybody else, just because that's what we're going to do. It's part of our DNA. We do see a couple different things. In the behavior modification space, there is the effort to help people live healthy that is being done by coaches all the time. It doesn't have to be a regulated process. It doesn't have to fall under the FDA, at least as its guidance now. And we can do that. But then we have these great research, this phase three trial on the tobacco, the new study we're doing on pain, where we can actually show really solid evidence that we can change behaviors that are actually really the type that cause disease or affect disease. So much has changed in the last couple of years. We're not exactly sure where it will go. There's the model like Achille, where it's a digital therapeutic that's approved as a treatment and on its own. There's more like the Lobongos and the Amadas, where technology is core to how they deliver their intervention. But it's definitely overseen and managed with a human in the loop. And I think with our trials, one of the things we're trying to find out is which are appropriate for which one. I don't want to limit access. So When do we need that? When is it appropriate? And when we want to make those medical claims and be able to shift that over, then I think right now the FDA is the gold standard, right? So we're looking at how do people know we're credible and we're safe and we're effective and behaviors and disease, you can't really pull them apart. But I think a lot of it comes down to the claims in our space of what you're trying to claim. We're
1: going to take a quick break and be right back with Joe Masterson. CEO of Tomorrow. Let's get to the commercial side of things. And I did see, obviously, you mentioned earlier, going through employers and some states, your relationship with Castlight that's been out there. How has it been going through companies such as Castlight Because part of the challenges that I'm hearing from other entrepreneurs is the challenges in activation, because there's kind of layers from cast light to the employer, the employer to the employees, etc. How does that affect your activation, your usage, etc.? So maybe talk to us about your experiences going that route and that model.
0: Partners are super important to our model. We're a smaller team. We're not ginormous. So that really helps expand access again. Can we get to more employers? Can we get to more groups? Our relationship with Castlight, who's now a pre, now has clinics as part of their overall package. But we've been working with Castlight for five or six years now. And I will admit, in the first couple of years, we were all figuring it out. We had these great big visions. We launch it. And then it's like, hmm, well... That's not working very well.
1: Crickets.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Over the years, I'll tell you, working with Castlight really closely, I think we're one of their most integrated partners. They've done a really amazing job at getting the right program to the right person at the right time. And they have a really strong incentive program that can kind of help people get rewarded for healthy behaviors in general. And some of our programs can be part of that. We found it to be critical. We actually have better enrollment and engagement now with our partners, with Castlight particularly at least, than we do with direct ones. And I think that's because they have built better relationships with their clients. More of the people are integrated in that platform. So for us, it's an asset, but it hasn't been a perfect road. I mean, we've worked really hard at that and they've worked really hard at it. I just think we're starting to get it figured out, what makes sense and what doesn't to people.
1: Yeah, it's tough to get things right on day one, as much as we all want to.
0: Or on day 500, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As you mentioned, a couple of years, it took time to kind of work through a lot of things. Are you exploring other channels or even outside of US as other regions?
0: Yeah, we definitely have direct-to-employer, direct-to-state, direct-to-health plans. We have contracts with those clients that are direct with us already. We have integrations with some of these platforms like Castlight or Pre, And then that keeps us pretty busy right now. (laughs) I'll tell you, that keeps us pretty busy right now. We've done a little bit of exploration with direct-to-consumer. I do find that, at least in the things we're working with, consumers They're not expecting to pay for these things themselves, so it's a little bit of a different sell, and kudos to the groups who have really figured that out and are doing that. And I, truthfully, will continue to look at some of the others in our industry and what's working for them and not as we move forward. As we move into the medical-grade space, these products that we believe have a role in preventing, managing, and treating disease— We're going to be looking for partners to help us commercialize in that space, I believe. I believe that integrating with either health systems or plans or maybe some of the formularies, maybe partnering with larger organizations who have access to the group we're looking for is really important in our model. We know what we're good at, and we're really good at building these behavior modification programs that help people move in the direction that they find valuable. And then I'd like to partner on some of the other parts.
1: Perfect. So normally I would have asked you, who do you like to give advice to? Entrepreneurs, policymakers, doctors, patients, et cetera. We actually didn't talk that through. So I'll leave it to you. Who would you like to give advice to?
0: Oh man, I think no matter who I give advice to, it's kind of the same advice to our team, to patients, to colleagues, to peers in this space. I find it's best when we focus on doing things that matter, when we act in alignment with our values and goals, and we don't sit on the sidelines of our own life. We try to encourage that in our participants. We try to encourage that in our team and in our partners as well. Are we working on the right things? Are we doing things that matter? And when we are, even if we're not perfect, we're moving in the right direction.
1: Really powerful words there. I started asking the question, who inspires you? And this is obviously a specifically kind of, let's call it digital health or a little broader health and care field. So we'd love to know who inspires you or who do you look up to?
0: I'm going to come back down into a little subgroup here. Caretakers. Caretakers inspire the heck out of me. And that includes clinicians. It includes the family members who are old and not feeling well and taking care of people who are old and not feeling well, right? It includes the people who get up every day, do what they need to do, try to do a good job, sometimes fail, and still wake up the next day and try again. And so... That's really the group that inspires me is just people in general and maybe caretakers in particular. You know, if they can do it, if they can get up and keep going and do it every day, then we should be doing it too.
1: Last month on February 17th was the National Caregiver Day, the power of the caregivers. Well, we started with you, Joe, and would love to finish with you. would love to know what gets you up in the morning. Aside from your husband. (laughs) Yeah,
0: not a morning person by nature, but what gets me going in the day, once I'm up and going, this is going to sound corny again, but I'm corny. I'm living the dream, right? I mean, we are at the start of a brand new industry whose goal is to improve lives, who's full of people and colleagues and competitors, patients and clients. And we're all trying to help people who aren't feeling well. And I just think it's so exciting to have this opportunity to be at the start of some new way to help reach people. And so I think even on the hard days, it's just I'm so grateful to have the opportunity. I don't want to drop it. I've been in healthcare since I was 20 and first became an RN at 20. These kind of really big pieces don't come around that often, those big things that are really going to change the industry. And how cool is it we get to be here and be part of it?
1: Well said, and I absolutely echo that. Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player, so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene
0: Borahovic, and catch you next time.